We are, uh, we're starting a new, a new series uh, this weekend called uh, uh, Prayer. That's, that's genius, right? Uh, guess, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about the things, like the way that we, we talk to God or, or the ways that we, we don't talk to God. Uh, some of you guys have heard that story about the newlywed couple uh, where the wife is making brisket for her husband. She's really excited. It's like the first fancy meal that she's making, and you know she's nervous about it. She takes this, this brisket, and she cuts off both ends of the brisket. She sticks it in the pan, puts it in the oven, and the, and the husband you know, says, you know, he asks her, why, why in the world did you cut off the ends of the brisket? That's, that's the best part of the brisket. And, and she said, um, uh, it, this is a common story, so for, for a lot of you, this may not be the first time you've heard this, but, but she says, because that's, that's the way my, my mom always did it. You know, that's, that's weird. So he actually asked his mother-in-law uh, about this and mentioned to his mother-in-law that his, her daughter, my wife, cut off both ends of the brisket like it didn't make any sense. That's like the best, that's the best part. And, and she said that you always do it that way. Do, do you do your brisket that way? She goes, yeah. Well, well why do you cut off the ends of the brisket before you cook it, she goes, I don't know. That's the way my mom always cooked brisket. And then he reached out to his wife's grandmother, who was still alive, and went through the same thing and said, did you, like, your daughter and your granddaughter both cut off the ends of the brisket before they stick it in the oven? And they said they do that because that's what you do. Is, is that true? And she said, well, yes, that's what I do. And he said, well, why do you cut off both ends of the brisket? And she said, because my oven's too small. <laughs> and... That was the real reason. So originally, there was an actual, like, intentional reason why this was happening. But the problem is that the reason why it was done this way was not communicated to the daughter. It was definitely not communicated to the granddaughter. But what they saw was that this is what mom did, so I just do this really without thinking about it. There's a lot of things that we do without really thinking about why we do it this way or what we're doing when we do it. For instance, um, putting on uh, your socks or your pants first. What do you put on first? Do you put on your, your socks first and then, and then your pants? Or do you put on your pants and then, and, then, and then your socks? Like, you probably do it one way or the other. And some of you guys who are OCD, like, you actually think about which order to put them on every single day when you put on your, your pants and your socks. But, like, whichever way, and some of you guys are like, I have no idea. I just, I'm not naked, and that's the only thing I care about today, Right? <laughs> So like, but you'd put, you really do. It's not like you, and by the way, if you put on one sock, then your pants, and then your other, like, you need help. <laughs> like, I, I know that's not normal, okay? So like, like, please, if you are a one sock person, then pants, and then the other sock, like, we have counselors in our church, <laughs> right? But, but, but you do either your socks or, or your pants, but you do, you, like, there is a way that you do that, and you probably don't even know why you do it that way. There are some of you guys who squeeze the toothpaste from the middle, and then there are those who squeeze the toothpaste from the end. Um, and like, you probably don't even, well, I'll tell you, like, like seriously, uh, if you squeeze the tube in the middle, like, you're like an axe murderer in waiting. Like, you're evil. Like, I don't understand, like, I, people who squeeze the, like, if you squeeze the toothpaste in the middle, I don't even think Jesus can love you. Like, I, that's how serious I think, like, that's. There's a whole lot of things Jesus can forget. I don't understand. Like, you just don't care about anybody else in the family. Because somebody else behind you has to come up and squeeze that. And you're like, oh, awesome. It's all fat at the top. And then you go, and then you push it down at the bottom again. Because you don't care about anybody but yourself. It's just the truth. 
I'm, I'm just, I'm just, okay. So I'm, whatever you, like there's a lot of things that we do that we're not even thinking about the way that we do it. Like, like it might be whether or not you, you use the soap first and then the shampoo or you use the shampoo first and then, and then the soap. I'm just saying there's a lot of things that we do without thinking about it. And honestly, I think the Our Father is one of them. The Now I Lay Me Down to Sleeps are one of them. Like we, we do, like when we pray, off, like if I just started saying Our Father who, well, okay, you can stop now. I'm just saying we, now you're like, I can't stop. That's blasphemy. I just started it. I have to finish it. We're not going to finish it. But you're not going to listen because you're going to be, like you're going to finish it yourself, and that's fine. You can do that, but, but you don't even know why you'd be doing that. You see what I'm saying? Like, like we, we quote the prayer all the time without even, without even thinking about it. And, and it's truthfully because of what the Bible has to say about prayer that I think some of us stay spiritually. What's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, 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 not, not halted. Um, like, 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 like we didn't make it to where we needed to be. We what, stunted. That's the word I think I'm talking, I'm, I'm thinking of. Like we, we spiritually become stunted because no one's ever taken the time to explain to us why we pray. Like, did God not know what was going to happen? And so like me praying changed the circumstances. And then like God didn't know that the circumstances were going to change. I mean, if God knows everything that's going to happen anyway, then, and it's going to happen that way or not, then what's the point of me praying, right? So me asking God to, to do this or not to do that, like, like if he was going to, then was, didn't he know before he created everything that he was going to be doing that? And the Bible says that God never changes, so why am I praying if I'm not going to be changing his mind anyway? Like, what's, like why, why am I supposed to pray, and what difference does it actually make? And that's what we're going to be talking about in, in this, this teaching series. It's a, it's a three-week series on prayer. And I genuinely believe that this is going to get a lot of us who maybe you, you, you've got spiritual information, but your faith has kind of gotten stale. And like it doesn't feel very meaningful, right? Like you're not like passionate about it at all. Like it, it's... It, it's, it's like cereal with no milk. Like that might be how your faith feels right now. And this is the milk to make your Rice Krispies snap, crackle, and pop. Dang, that was good. And I brought that out of nowhere. <laughs> Dang. All right. So here's where we are. We're in the action. I had no idea. That's a, that's a good one. No, I'm going to remember that one. I'll write that one down. Put that one in the notes. All right. Acts chapter 4 is where we're at. So if you've got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, uh, here's what's happened, and um, it actually happens uh, uh, at the end of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4. We're not going to start reading until towards the end of chapter 4, uh, but you guys have probably heard of Peter, James, and John. Uh, there's that Peter, James, and John in the sailboat, Peter. Okay, sorry, that was my childhood church. I don't know if that was your childhood church, if you even went to church as a kid. But there's like a little song about Peter, James, and John. And these are like the three disciples that Jesus was closest to. And these guys are famous. And you don't even have to be religious. And you've probably heard of St. Peter, right? Like he's the one on the computer checking everybody in when they get off the escalator into heaven, according to all the jokes and the, and, and the, and the, and the cartoons, right? It's like we know who Peter is. And you may know who James is. 
and, and John was the disciple that Jesus loved. James and, 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 and uh, John were, were brothers. Um, uh, so it's, it's those three guys who are the closest to Jesus. And, and at this, in chapter 4, it's, it's just Peter and, and John. And Peter and John have been, have, been, have been preaching. And then there was a man who was born, uh, who, who for his entire life was crippled. Like It's not like an accident happened to him and then he lost his ability to walk. He never walked in his entire life. And he's over 40 years old. So everybody knows this is a crippled guy who waits outside the temple. And, and he you know, begs alms you know, uh, from from, from the godly who are going into temple. And, you know, it's, it's part of the expression of their faith to give to those who are poor, uh, like this beggar. And so, they, they, so everybody kind of knew who this guy was. And when, when Peter and, and John walked by the guy, they're like, I, I, don't have any, I don't have anything to give you, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise, rise up and walk. And the guy gets up and, and walks, and everybody's like, what? And it like blows everybody's mind. And now everybody's listening to everything that Peter and John are preaching about Jesus. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who've been threatened by the popularity of Jesus, call Peter and, and John in. And they're, they're like, like what's, what's going on? And the Bible says they, they wanted to arrest them. They, they wanted to punish them, but they were afraid to do anything because of, of how the people had responded so wildly, like accepting of Peter and John. And so what they do is, at, in, in the, towards the middle of, of uh, Acts chapter 4, is they call them in, and the Bible says that they, they threatened them. They said, if you don't stop preaching that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And by the way, the Sadducees were the ones who were saying this. And there are two different groups of religious Jewish leaders. There were those who believed in a resurrection of the dead to eternal life with God. And then there were those Jews who believed that once you die, you, you just die. And so there was even a theological debate among the Jewish leaders of their day. And so it was the ones who said there is no resurrection who were really upset that Peter and John were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And they said, you guys need to stop doing this. If you don't stop doing this, then we're going to make life, life rough on you. And, and, and in fact, this is the very first time, the very first time in all of history, right, where, where they, the followers of Jesus were being persecuted for teaching that Jesus had resurrected from the dead physically. Not like a metaphor, but like he actually rose from the dead. Now, they knew this had happened and paid off the guards to tell everybody a different story. So it's not like they weren't aware of this, but what they didn't want is for things to change because under the status quo, they were in charge of everybody. They could exact temple tax on anybody they wanted. Like they had this racket going and Jesus was like threatening to change all of this. It was like completely turned everything upside down and they, they didn't want that. So they said, you, you need to stop doing this. And this actually became the very first like persecution that they faced that resulted in every single one of the disciples of Jesus being murdered for teaching this. So this is the very first step towards all of them being murdered because of what they had been saying. So it's like the first time the temperature had been turned up on them. And then they say this famous thing, they said, you know, should we, should we listen to men or, or to God, right? Like, we, we have to, like, do you want us to listen to you? Or do you want us to listen to what, what God says? Because you're not saying the same, the same things. So they walk out determined that we're going to continue following God. And then they go back to the gathering of those who had already become followers of Jesus and reported to them what had happened. And then somebody makes the suggestions, well, we need to talk to God about this. So if this is the very first thing that ever happens towards all of them 
being martyred for their faith in Jesus, what would you pray in that very first prayer? The very first time it becomes obvious to you that this is going to cost me my life. What would you pray the very first time you thought that that might happen? Because that's what they prayed. Like I'm thinking my prayer would be, dear God in heaven, smite them. Right? Jack them up in the name of Jesus. Jack them up. Like that's, that's kind of the way I, I would pray. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read their prayer. And we'll see what we'll learn from it. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And somebody voiced their prayer collectively. Somebody prayed this to God on behalf of the rest of the church family. And this is the prayer. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. I love that. Like the first thing they pray is, God, you ain't lost your mind. God, you're over everything. This whole world is yours. My life is yours. This city is yours. They're yours. Everything, God, is yours. Like you are, like, <laughs> I was going to say the bomb diggity, but we ain't said that in like 20 years. I'm just saying, like, you are, like, you're it. Like, this is all, like, it's you. Like, all of this is for you. That's how they start off their prayer. Back at it. Uh, verse 23. Uh, verse 24. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, verse 25, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit, saying, through our ancestor David, your servant, you said, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. God, you said a long time ago that people were going to scheme against what you were trying to do in the world. All they're acknowledging is, God, you said life would be hard. You, would, you said that things would not always go the way we wanted them to go. God, you're over everything. You haven't lost your mind. You haven't lost where I'm at in the process. It's all yours. You even said that life would be difficult, that people would be against you. Job had said, you might would pray, um, that mankind is few days and full of sorrow. God, I'm acknowledging that there's nothing happening in my life that you weren't aware of, that you didn't see coming. Like, that's, like do you see this kind of, like, this is wisdom. Like, that's, they're praying at a whole nother level. My prayer doesn't start off with, God, you're over everything. There's nothing happening in my life you didn't see coming. God, you got this. You even told me life would be hard. You told me relationships would be difficult. You told me that it would be by pride that all contention comes. Right? Like that's, I don't know that any of us start our prayers where they started theirs. Right? So let's go back to their prayer. Verse 27. In fact, he says, uh, in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according, according to your will. So they move from, God, you're over everything. God, you said it would be difficult. To, God, you've already worked all of this that we're going through into the story of our life that you're writing. 
And this leads me to the first of only three points that we have for our teaching today, and that's this. We pray not to change God, but to change us. This is why we pray. This is why we pray. We pray not because we're trying to change God's perspective on our circumstances. We pray so that our perspective will change in our circumstances. We don't pray like this. The truth is, when I lose my job, I pray like God's lost his mind and didn't know that this was going to happen to me. I'm complaining to God about how dry the grass is on my side of the fence. And what I want is the grass on everybody else's side of the fence. That's what I want. I want God to change the grass that's on my side of the fence. And what prayer is, it's the water, it's the spigot by which God begins to water the grass that's already in my yard. That's what prayer does. Prayer gets me to see my circumstances differently. You know why? Because I need to respond differently in my circumstances. Because life is short and life is full of sorrow. Because we live in a sin-cursed, screwed up, jacked up, turned away from God and the source of all that is life world. We're going to get cancer. We're going to be mistreated. We're going to be lied to. This is not God's fault. This is ours. It doesn't catch him off guard, even if it catches me off guard. And the problem with my prayer life is I act as though God has wronged me. And that he needs to fix this. God needs to fix what's broken in, in the lives of those around me. Prayer says, God, you're over all grass and all fields. You see my grass, you know how dry it is, and you're okay with it. And it is in that moment that my own grass becomes greener to me. I've mentioned this before, but I had three weeks notice before I lost my full-time job when we were starting Grace Church. Grace Church was about 35 people. Um, we had just had a baby. Billy Jane wasn't, wasn't able to work. And in that same moment, a church in Baltimore, Maryland had offered me a full-time job to leave Boston and go down and, and pastor this church. And they made a mistake of, they didn't make a mistake. I think they were manipulating me. They told me what the starting salary was. And I was like, what? Right, it, was, it, was a large, it was a large church in Baltimore. Not that it's any, whatever. My, my point is, um, I, I didn't see any of this coming. And uh, when you lose your job because you feel you're doing the right, if I had lost my job because I cheated or stole something or had done something wrong or was insubordinate to my boss or wasn't measuring the numbers of sales that, that, that were my, my, my target or my, my goal for that, that quarter, I, I would have understood. But in, in all honesty, to the best of my knowledge, there wasn't anything that I had done wrong. And my wife had just had a baby, and I've got three weeks' notice before we lose our income. And truthfully, I couldn't go to Baltimore. You know why I couldn't go to Baltimore? Because I, I knew if I moved off of Seaver Street that my actual friends who lived on Seaver Street might spend forever separated from God. That's really what it came down to. And I knew that if I took that job, I'd be making a decision based on money. And I'd, once I started making decisions based solely on money, I'd know I'd never stop. Are you with me? And my prayers changed. When I called my dad, completely freaking out. What am I going to do? I've got a wife. I've got a brand new baby. 
Like, I, like that was Ryan. Like, I, like, I lost. And my dad said this. Did God know this was going to happen, yes or no? Yes. Has God already worked this into the story of your life, yes or no? Does God know how this will work out, yes or no? Yes. Then trust him. And in that moment, I got a brand new job. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't get any of that. <laughs> I stayed jobless. But everything in my life changed. Not because God changed, but because I did. I went before God, and my prayer was this. Dear God, I trust that you knew I'd lose my job. I trust that you knew I got her stinking knocked up before I lost my job. I trust that you knew all of this ahead of time. I trust that you haven't lost me. I trust that you know exactly where I am. I trust that you know what I'm afraid of. And I trust you to have already figured out how this is going to work out. And God, my panic doesn't come from the fact that I don't believe you. My panic is coming from the fact that I don't have it worked out. But God, my confidence is going to come from the truth that you do know how it'll work out. And that brought to me, in the middle of the hurricane of my life, it put me in the center of the eye. I don't know if you've ever, nobody in New England's ever, so it doesn't matter. In the middle of a hurricane is an eye where it's clear skies. Everything around you is chaotic and falling apart and the wind's knocking over trees and blowing cars into buildings and all this kind of stuff. But right smack dab in the middle of that hurricane, there's peace. Right? There's clear skies. And that's what that did. That's what prayer did for me. Prayer didn't give me money. Prayer didn't give me a new job. Prayer gave me peace when I had no job. Prayer gave me peace when I had no money. Because prayer didn't change God. Prayer changed who? Me. That's what prayer did. Prayer changes me. We see our lives through the lens of our circumstances while God sees our lives through the lens of what's happening in our hearts and our circumstances. The disciples were told that they were in danger. And truthfully, they were. Like I said, this is when persecution, the next time they were caught, they were let out one more time. They were let out because of a man named Gamaliel. The next time they were caught, though, they were whipped. Then they were kept in prison overnight. And the next time they were whipped. Ended up, like I said, every single one of them were killed because of, 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 their, of their faith. And when they were in danger, their prayer was this. God, you got this. Their praying that God has this gave them the ability to keep moving even when everything in their life had told them to stop. I lost my job and my prayer became, God, you got this. Your marriage might be bad, but Lord, you've got this. You may be upset that you're all alone or you don't feel like you have any friends or you don't like who you are or you wish your personality was different or that you were smarter or more attractive or had a better upbringing or that your parents hadn't hurt you when you were a kid or all of this other stuff. But your prayer needs to be, but God, you've got this. That's the prayer. That's the prayer. God, I'm not asking you to wave a magic wand over my life as though you've ruined me 
or you owe me more than what I have in my life. What I trust is that you knew I would be at this place in my life and that you've worked it into the story of my life, which ultimately leads towards your glory and my good. God, you've got this. What do they pray next? Verse 29. Look at this. Look at their prayer. After saying you've got this, what would you pray next? But God, give me a job. But God, bring me my spouse. But God, change my personality, take away the cancer. What would you pray next? I'll show you what they prayed next. Watch this. Verse 29. This is awesome. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, victory over them and beat the living tar out of them. That's how I would finish that prayer. Their prayer was, and now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, two things. Great boldness to keep preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power and may miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31 goes on to say, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was simply, God, you've got all of this under control. You're the God who created heaven and earth. What I'm going through right now isn't stumping you. God, I'm more interested in you doing something through these circumstances than you rescuing me from these circumstances. And that was the prayer that God answered. Paul tried to pray the other way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, here's what Paul prayed. Paul prayed for the circumstances to change, and here's what God said to him. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 12, verse 7 through 9 says this. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, which was a continuation of a thought in verse 6, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. And the Bible never tells us what that thorn is, but I got a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away from me. Each time, God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. So Paul tried it the other way. I don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. Nobody knows. There's a lot of debate. It's not like contentious debate, but there's a lot of theories of what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was. So Paul went to God and said, change my circumstances. God said, no. He went back and said, God, change my circumstances. Take this away from me. Fix my life and make it easier. God said, no, I'm not going to do that. Again, Paul, the apostle Paul, Saint Paul, the guy that God uses to write two-thirds of the New Testament comes before God. I mean, if anybody could pray, your, your prayers versus Paul's prayers. Who's Paul? Like, like, right? Like we think, well, Paul's prayer would definitely be answered because I'm an idiot. Okay, maybe that you wouldn't say that, but I'm thinking, you know, compared to Paul's prayers, that's going to be like a really good prayer. And so he went to God and said, God, this is what's wrong in my life. Fix this. And the third time God said, no, I'm okay with your life not being perfect. Because it's through your imperfection that I will be most clearly seen in your life by others who are close to your life. Truthfully, the best thing that could happen to you is not the worst thing happening to you. The best thing, the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be you living the rest of your life never having anything come into your life that grabs your attention and turns your heart back to God again. That would be the worst thing ever happening to you. Just this past week, it's been in the news about those two moms, the famous TV star moms, the bulldozer parents who paid for their kids to be, to be like accepted into those schools. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
They call them bulldozer moms, bulldozer parents, parents who remove every obstacle. And they say how horrible that is for the child because you're creating in your child a brat. Why in the world do we ask God to clear all obstacles out of our path when we know it's not in the best interest of our own kids to do that for them? It is okay for you to be in a position where you are reminded that you can't fix everything because that keeps your heart pointed to the one who can use everything that's got you jacked up. And that's okay. You being exactly where you are could be used right now by God to keep your heart pointed toward him. Maybe, honestly, all God's been trying to do anyway is just get your attention and nothing else has worked. But now he's got it because you're at least talking to him again. The problem is that you're treating him like a genie in a bottle. You're saying, I rubbed the lamp, I went to church, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And what I want you to know, people in the Bible didn't pray that way. It's not the kind of prayers that God answers. The prayer should be, dear God, you are over everything. You said life would be hard, and it is. And then tell him what's going on. God, I'm scared to death. I lost my job, and my wife just had a baby. And I don't know what we're going to do for our mortgage next month. But I trust you. Help me to keep trusting you more. Help me to not compromise. Help me to keep trusting. Dear God, don't let me blame you for the way I am. Dear God, use this for something good. God, I trust that you are in control of my life, and I'm not asking you to change my circumstances. I'm asking you to change my heart in the circumstances. Which brings me to the next thing. We don't pray just for God to just change things. We ask him to change us in these things. And the last one is this. Prayer helps you see your life from God's perspective. This is what prayer does. Prayer, my purpose for prayer is not to change God, it's to change me. And I don't pray for God to change the circumstances, the things that I'm going through. I'm asking God to change me as I go through these circumstances. The last thing is this. Prayer helps me see my life from God's perspective. We just started March Madness this weekend. What's really awesome, I'll tell you this, there's a kid who was raised here at Grace Church who, who's the uh, sixth man on Oklahoma. Uh, so I'm, I'm only saying this because they, they won on, on Friday and they play again on Sunday night. So if you see Aaron Klitsky, uh, I, I don't even know if I should even be, it doesn't matter. He's a great kid. He was The only church he's ever been a part of is Grace Church. Whenever he's in town, he's, he's here. But he's so root for Oklahoma on top of whoever. Like I'm, If you didn't have them in your bracket, I don't know what to tell you. Tough. You need to root for him is all I'm, I'm saying. Anyway, uh, in March Madness, a coach calls a, a timeout because when the coach calls a timeout, all he wants is access to his players to share with them things that he sees about the game that they ain't noticed yet. You know why he calls his timeout? So he can get them to start playing a little bit differently. Does that make sense? It's exactly what prayer does. Prayer is not when I stop to tell the coach what he needs to do differently on the bench. Prayer is like a timeout when I come over to the coach and I say to the coach, what do you see that I ain't seeing? I need to play in this game a little bit better than the way I'm playing. Does that help? That's what prayer does. Prayer is like a timeout in a March Madness game. It's when the coach says, I want to talk to you. A lot of us, honestly, we're too busy playing a game. And so we're, we're, we're still not covering the guy we're supposed to. We're still not catching the baseline moves. We're still not, because we've never come back to the coach and asked him, what do you see that I ain't seeing yet? And truthfully, the more time you spend with a good coach, the better basketball you begin to play. Yes or no? Right? And the more time you spend with God, not asking God to change the other players in the game, but to help you play the game better, the better you'll actually be in the game. That's what prayer does. 
Where do you need God's perspective in your life right now? And how often do you call a timeout to ask God's help in going through this? The divorce rate in our country is one out of every two divorces uh, break up. They, they, they fail and, and they get a divorce. You know what the number of, of, the, of the divorce rate uh, between uh, couples that pray together at least once a week? Now, the, the divorce rate average, uh, both in the church and out of the church, sadly, is exactly the same. It's one in two, except for those couples that actually pray together once a week. Because of couples that pray together once every week, the divorce rate is one out of every 10,000. And I'll tell you why. Because couples who pray together understand that trials refine them, they don't ruin them. They seek help through their rough spots. They don't seek escape from their rough spots. That's why they make it. Like Paul, you and I both have thorns in our life that God is not going to remove because he intends us to grow through them. Your prayer is the water by which the dry side on our side of the fence becomes watered and green again. Imagine if you stopped blaming God for the bad you've experienced in a world that he said would be bad. Imagine if your prayers stopped acting like he was Santa Claus, that you were asking for all of these lists. Imagine if your prayer instead stopped from being, God, do this for me, fix this, do this, fix this, give me this, let me have that, bring that to me, change them and make them be nice and I want to raise. And what if your prayer instead became, dear God, I know that right now I'm exactly where you knew I would be. And I know that right here, while I'm here in this, you love me as much as you've ever loved me. That you haven't lost track of me. That you knew this would happen. That you wrote this into the story of my life. And that if I could just change the way I'm guarding the baseline, I'd start scoring again. And all I'm asking you, God, to do is this. I'm not asking you to change her. I'm asking you to change me. That's what I want. You know people who are rich and miserable. You know people that are rich and happy. You know poor people that are, that, that are poor and happy. You know the circumstances. That, listen, your happiness does not come from the amount of money you have in the bank. It doesn't come from how healthy or how smart you are. It comes from whether or not you are looking at your life the way God intended you to look at it. That's what prayer does. God, I trust you. Do in me what you want regardless or whether or not you change anything around me. I trust you. What would happen then? Let's try it. Let's pray. God, I'm asking for your will to be done in each one of our hearts so that your will could be done in each one of our lives. And the truth is, there's not a single person in here, God, who has a perfect life. All of us are broken. All of us have needs. All of us have things that, about our lives that we, we wish were different, and we struggle with these things. And some of us, it has to do with things that we're going through now. Others of us, it has to do with things that we've gone through in the past. Uh, it, it just things about us that we wish were different. But God, none of the things that we're going through, none of the things that we're in right now have caught you by surprise. You knew, you knew we would be here right now as we, like, nothing about this surprises you. God, you've got this. And what I'm asking you to do is not change our circumstances, is to change us in these circumstances. 
And God, if there's something that I've got to learn going through this that I won't learn in any other way, dear God in heaven, teach it to me now so I never have to go through this again. God, I understand that there's things you're going to do in me that won't be done if all of my life was easy and I'm trusting you. Let that be your prayer also. God, change us in our circumstances, whether our circumstances change or not. God, I trust you. I trust that you know exactly where I am and what I need. Help me to stop blaming you for this and start running to you because of it. Let that be the attitude and intentions of our heart, we pray. And we ask in the name of Jesus and we all say together.